0: Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com Thank you, Ian. Well, it's good to see you all gathered this morning and uh, let me just put in a wee alert at the beginning that I don't have any slides to, is this a bit muffled? Okay. Um, I don't have any slides to accompany uh, my talk today. Um, so if you're wanting to take down some of the quotes that I referenced, you'll have to have a wee pen handy. I'm kind of a bit old fashioned when it comes to slides. I said to someone this week, the only slide I enjoy is one you go down on your backside. But I do enjoy, I do enjoy a prop. And uh, I brought a little prop with me today, and it's just this here. Now, you know, uh, one of the things that I really love about January and the beginning of a new year is that you get to do a real clear out. Are you familiar with that practice at the beginning of a year? Uh, You're rid of your cupboards and your closets, and you get rid of what you don't need, and what you won't eat, and what will refuse to fit you anymore which is about 50% of my wardrobe at the moment. It always feels really great to have a purge. And just before Christmas, um, I got a new set of shelves for my books. And I was going through all the books, which ones I wanted to keep up there, which ones I wanted to move to the attic maybe, and some other ones that are destined for the recycling plant. But you know, when I was going through all the books, tucked right in the middle of them was this little notepad here. This little a faded charcoal, charcoal-covered notepad, and when I saw it in the bookcase, immediately I was drawn back 25 years to when I was a lad of 16 or 17. And uh, it's filled with written-out Bible verses from the King James Version, of course. <laughs> when I was trying to memorise them at the time, as you know, as I turned over the pages, I was right back there again right back to those days in my bedroom that I shared with my older brother when, I don't know, it felt like a switch went on for me. And I fell head over heels with God. I couldn't get enough of the Bible. I discovered Hillsong and Darlene Chek. And I started to wear a shirt and tie and shiny shoes on Sundays. And it was like the romance had begun. And I couldn't get enough. And I remember the pastor coming to see us at our home. And when he came, my mother kind of gave an eye roll. And she said, oh, our John goes through phases. It's probably just another one of those. And it's right. She was right. I did. So I had a Kylie Minogue phase. (laughs) I had a Japanese phase, strangely enough. I actually had a phase about snakes, would you believe, in these days I can't stand the creatures. I even had a prisoner cell block H phase, and if you've never come across that, Bill, in your life is diminished. <laughs> but my mother had uh, warrants for her response. But I don't know, this phase seems to have been the longest lasting. But you know, as I went through this little notepad, thought back to those days whenever everything was so brand new and exciting and within reach. And when the gospel was so clear and so concise and so compelling and I was so certain and there were no ambiguities and the great task at hand was to bring others into that certainty. And it was the beginning of my romance. That's how it started. Just a foolish boy of 16 with foolish notions about a black and white world and what it meant to live a life of faith. You know, standing in my bedroom reminiscing, I thought to myself, how much has changed since then? The romance has taken a good few hints, hits and knocks over the years. There have been times of wrestling and doubt when I wasn't certain my certainties anymore and the contours got changed and I even wondered if I had anything left at all. There have been times of great angst and even despair Confronted with the suffering in the world, the suffering in others around me, the pain even in my own life, times whenever it felt like cliches and platitudes just would not suffice. Why does God not temper the wind for the shorn lamb? Why does God allow the hawk to kill the sparrow? Does any of it even make sense? There have been times when we've been disappointed, times when we've felt ignored Indeed, there have been times when I felt very cramped by it all, because along the road we kept bumping into people and into situations that kept challenging my tidy view of the world, who made me wrong when I had shelves of books that made me right, who kept giving me opportunities to waken up and lighten up and face up and grow up, if only I'd known. And so here I am now, 25 years on, this little black book is in my hand. And I remember our mission back then was to change the world one person at a time. And what happened instead was my own world got radically changed. And some days I think I know less now than I've ever known before. And I say all this as a kind of disclaimer because... When it comes to talking about prayer, I've got to be really open with you all and say I'm utterly unqualified. I still feel after 25 years only at the edge of the very edges. I don't understand it, I can't explain it, I don't know how it works. I only know that in some mysterious way it's important. Just as in life all the important things are ritualised, so if you, if you love someone you'll kiss them. If you think someone is important or of great esteem, you'll shake their hand. If you believe in God, you'll pray. But how do you do that? Well, you know, over the few past few weeks, Dave and Stephanie have helped to give us some glimpses and snapshots. Talking to God, talking with God. And I would say that for the vast majority of us here today, that's how we see it. Talking. It means talking to an all-knowing An all-powerful God, he might influence events in the future on our behalf. In other words, prayer is filled up with ideas of his power, his control, his ability, and his strength. And when you think of it, it's almost like texting God when you need something. It's like the little caption I came across somewhere in social media that says, Right, I'm off to pray. Anyone want anything? (laughs) Wendy Cope wrote this poem. When I went out shopping, I said a little prayer. Jesus, help me park the car, for you are everywhere. Jesus, in his goodness and grace, Jesus found me a parking space in a very convenient place. Oh, toot the horn and praise him. And I know I'm being facetious, but this is kind of how most of us see it. But what if talking is only a part of prayer? So yes, we talk to unburden our hearts, well, what happens when your words run out? What happens whenever you're scraping the bottom of the verbal barrel? What happens when there's only silence left? Or the deep, inarticulate longings of your being? Well, what if prayer, or the impulse to, prayer, to pray, becomes this exercise in paying attention? Or straining the inner ear? To hear. Or it becomes just this bare recognition of your own frailty and of how dependent and exposed and limited you really are. Or something that beckons you out of yourself. That instead of seeing it like this kind of cosmic slot machine, where when you say the right words and muster up enough faith and have the right Bible promise, the answer will be on its way. Instead of that, seeing it more like a response of the soul to the wonder and the discovery and the darkness that it encounters. There's actually a couple of images that I find really helpful with this. One comes from Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, where he talks about sitting in the sunlight. You know, like like a plant that opens itself up and is drawn to the warmth Another image unfolding the, flip, the fist. Because a clenched fist represents so much of the human spirit, or high handedness, or pride, or desire to control and be possessive. A clenched fist is used to assault and to threaten. But what of the essence of real prayer is not banging down a fist in demand, but renouncing it and releasing it. And so, as the soul awakens, the hand opens up as if to let go of pride and ego and self sufficiency. And so, there's something about these two images that I find deeply stabilizing. Because, probably like me, many of you have experienced a lot of disillusionment when it comes to prayer. Different times in your life when you've wanted it to be clean cut, you've wanted the definitive word. You've wanted to hear the concrete answer, the miracle to show up on your doorstep, and it hasn't turned out that way. And it then becomes the hiddenness of God, or in those moments, his apparent silence that can be so disconcerting. I was just thinking about C.S. Lewis this past week uh, from his book, A Grief Observed which he wrote in the aftermath of the loss of his beloved wife, Joy Gresham, in which you know, he speaks about that sense of abandonment. And he writes, When you're happy, so happy that you've no sense of needing him, so happy that you feel tempted to, to think that his claims upon your life are an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn back to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcome with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. And I guess all of us have been there at times. Times when we've been confronted with a God he seems to keep on hiding or Disappearing. And so he always seems to just be beyond our reach. And we're tempted to interpret then his hiddenness as his absence and his silence as his abandonment. And there's two kinds of responses that we can make at that point before such a mystery. We can try and resolve it. You know, we can try and resolve the mystery with Bible studies and theology and apologetics and platitudes and cliches. You know, we have to explain it. And a lot of us came from churches like that. But then there's another response, and rather to resolve the mystery, it is to deepen it. To be willing to remain tongue-tied before it. You know, to try, lean into it, to recognize that God doesn't hide himself because he's being indifferent or hardened toward us, but actually, strangely, to make himself known and to draw us out of ourselves and to, to encourage us to kind of break The shells that we form around ourselves, like a wee snail or a hedgehog, all curled up in its own obsessions. I I really love what the medieval mystic Eckhart said. I quote this all the time. He said, God is like a person hiding in the dark. Who occasionally coughs and gives himself away. I remember when we were small and we used to play one, two, three. Remember that? In our state. And whenever my sister was it, she'd always take the longest time to find you. You'd be curled up in the coal bunker or in the dog kennel or somewhere. And she was <laughs> no, any quicker to, to be finding you. And so you'd make a wee noise like a, a cough or a yawn or something. And then she would think she'd find you. And Eckhart said, that's what God's like. And as painful as his hiddenness and his silence is, there are those moments in our lives when he coughs, those moments of discovery, epiphany, those click moments when you say to yourself, ah, he's there. It's what C.S. Lewis again called patches of light in the woods. And you don't quite believe your own belief anymore. And maybe you're asking, well, what does this mean, though? How do, what does this look like? Because you just have to go on TikTok for five minutes, and you'll see that the internet is full of people who tell us that God told them things all the time. How can we distinguish a valid testimony? I know of one woman who reported that God told her things all the time. So she'd say things like, well, God just told me to sit down and listen. Or God just told me to stand up and speak. Or he said, read Proverbs 12. Or she'd look at some man who came into the church. She was single at the time. She would look at some man who came into the church and eh, she would get her hopes up and then she would say, no, the Lord said that's not the one. It's a wee bit irritating after a while. I always kind of wanted to ask her if the Lord might give her the rollover numbers at the weekend, but I didn't dare do it. People say things and do things all the time that are crazy and then they use the voice of God to justify it. Now, I'm only speaking for myself here when I say this, that although there are some Christians who will clearly tell you that God spoke to them on a certain day and time with an audible voice or a vision or some kind of supernatural visitation, personally, that's never been my experience. am not speaking for everyone here, but it hasn't been my experience. It doesn't mean God hasn't done it that way. It just for the vast majority of us, I would say it hasn't been that way. How then can we be grounded? Well, maybe the answer lies in the internal dialogue of the Christian community. In other words, we're able to test our experiences by relating them to those that our tradition has been privileged to know through its ages. So, today, just in the time remaining, I want to roll out a few of these for your consideration. Five, in effect, five channels of discovery. These may not be exhaustive, and even though sometimes we're slow to hear, clumsy to speak, to learn, if our ears are open, we may just discover a cough of them. Number one, perhaps the most obvious engagement with the scriptures. You know, indeed, the reason why we call this book not just the Bible, which means books, but we call it the Holy Bible, is because of the way people encounter God through reading his pages. And you know, sometimes people think the way to do that is to just kind of let it open, fall open randomly by itself, and then kind of close your eyes like this, and kind of point, and wherever your finger lands, that's where the answer to their question lies, That always kind of reminds me a little bit of reading tea leaves or consulting the I Ching. You know, I came from a background in which almost the assumption was that the Bible fell out of the skies like that. It just fell out, wrapped up like that, like a gift like that, straight out of the skies. Inerrant, infallible, indestructible Word of God. And then you go and study it a wee bit deeper. And this might come as a shock to some of you to hear me say this. It certainly did to me but you discover that the texts aren't always consistent and that the Bible's pretty varied in its outlook. It's not, you know, like a jigsaw where all the pieces fit neatly together like we were taught in Sunday school, but rather it's more like a collage of different views and different expressions and different encounters drawn from different eras and different cultures and different authors and yet all held together in this intriguing way. And that then becomes... The place where we glimpse and hear something of God and of his ways in the world. And it becomes the place where we find a vocabulary for our faith. And what sometimes people forget is that the Bible, in addition to a lot of laws and genealogies and uh, some really sound advice, the Bible essentially contains many biographies. Abraham and Rebekah and Moses and Hosea and Habakkuk. And John the Baptist, and Nicodemus, and Mary Magdalene, and Paul, and Joseph, and on, and on, and on. And it tells us the stories of their relationships with God. And of all the particular things that God had to say to each of them. And how he related to them as individuals, and in individual ways. Not like recruits in some faceless army. So God's will didn't come to them in like a printed manual with specific answers on page 536, paragraph 5, line 14. It came in the form of a relationship, which they were either free to embrace or to run away from. And what all of their stories combine to tell us is that God comes to us in the same way. He comes to call us into relationship with him. Not that reading their stories can be a substitute for our own, like some kind of second-hand religion, We have to live out our own stories. We have to search for the unique shape that our own lives will take in companionship with God. We have to find his particular word to us. But reading these stories and becoming familiar with the Bible is the way that we become familiar with his ways in the world. And listen, I know for some of us that's tough. I remember a few years ago during one of the most upheaval times of my entire life, one of the most painful, difficult times. I remember an elder coming to my door with a big black Bible under his arm and he said he wanted to read to me Romans chapter 1 as if I'd never heard it before, as if I hadn't agonized over it, as if in fact I hadn't known it by heart, line by line by line. Sometimes we can be so wounded by the way Christians weaponize the Bible. I know I was, and for a time it meant that I couldn't even read it. For about 10 months I couldn't even open it. Every time I did it, I almost felt like this wave of anxiety going over me. And I reckon that's how a lot of people must feel when they've had experiences of the Bible being used against them. And so only very gradually, gently, do we learn to read it again with fresh eyes and through a lens of love. And you know, the Bible then becomes for you like a friend, a companion of faith. And of course, as everyone here knows, friendship isn't always a smooth seal. Some days you love them, some days you can't stand them. Sometimes you argue, sometimes you debate and disagree. But a real friend is someone that you enjoy spending time with because of what you learn about yourself when you're with them and because of what you learn about them in this dialogue of exchange. And so that's the first avenue. Second one, listening to the circumstances of our lives. You see, the old religious word for this is providence, providence where you kind of connect up the dots. And as one of my old friends used to say, it's the realization that you're much better led than you know. Now, this is often something that we only grasp retrospectively. In other words, you don't see it at the time, but it's only when you kind of take a look back and you say, ah, ah, have you ever done that? Have you ever taken a look back across your life? And as you do, you've been able to trace the, the invisible guiding hand You know, during the summer, I had this opportunity to run a forgiveness project down in the detention center in Dublin. And for about two months, I had eight boys in a room. And we studied together the Old Testament story of Joseph. And it was a wonderful experience. And you know, the thing that stood out to me about Joseph is that when he wanted to hear the voice of God, he listened to his life. He didn't have a Bible to read. He listened to his life. He listened to his dreams. He listened to the people that he met along the way. He listened to the things that happened to him every day. He paid attention to those things, the good things, the bad things, and he learned to be an interpreter of them. Probably didn't make much sense to him, each one on their own, but years and years later, down in Egypt, when he was the prime minister over the whole country, and his brothers showed up begging for grain, In that instant, you can read this in Genesis 45, Joseph could see the pattern. He looked back and it all of a sudden made sense. No one explained it to him, but he could see God's fingerprints all over it. And that's why he was able to forgive his brothers for the wounds that they'd inflicted, because he was nobody's victim. Because whenever he looked and he listened to his life, he didn't just see a series of senseless tragedies. He saw a lighted path. And part of it led through a pit. And part of it led down to Egypt with his hands tied behind his back. And for some years it even wound through a dark prison. But now today when he looked and down at his feet, there it was, that lighted path. And it led him straight to where he was, the prime minister over all of Egypt. And what he discovered in that moment was the mystery of providence. And sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. And sometimes, you know, you can see the work of God in your life a mile away, and other times you've got a dust for fingerprints. But nevertheless, it's true, it's one of the ways that we discern him. Number three, we hear him in the quiet recesses and inclinations of our own hearts. Now probably like some of you has brought up to think that you could never trust your heart, because Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And I sat under a reformed doctrine which taught total depravity. That doesn't mean that you know every part of you is just bad to the bone wicked. What it meant was that there's no part of you that you can run to to find an island of innocence. Every part is affected. And we were brought up thinking that. And I know that there's a sense in which that is true because sometimes we do find within ourselves misguided desires or selfish ambitions or wrong motivations. And sometimes indeed it is true that the heart of the problem problem is the problem of the heart. But it's also true that in another sense, that which God has put inside of us is instinct and intuition and the deep desires and longings within us that are utterly human and noble. And sometimes deep in there, inside there, we hear the whisper, or we feel the tug. You know, like a little boy flying a kite on a cloudy day, and he can't know, see the, clou- the kite anymore for the clouds, but he can feel the tug. And sometimes deep inside you can feel the tug. You know, have you, have you ever never stood before a sinking sun and seen the valley all splashed with pinks and scarlets and felt the tug? Have you never stood in a, in a field full of tall, sweet-smelling grass just full of living things, or looked out in an ocean or up at the vault of the stars at night and just had this se- sense deep inside that you're deeply loved and that everything's going to be okay? Have you never sat in the silence of the morning before the earth stirred or the household had broken even into a peep and it was so quiet that you felt you could almost hear God thinking? Have you ever had those moments deep inside, way down deeper than all the noise and kerfuffle and din on the surface, when like the prophet Elijah, you hear that still, small voice? And you realize he doesn't come to us with hobnailed boots to kick the door in, but he comes to us in a whisper. Number four, he comes to us in the web of human relationship. Let me ask you, have you ever spied God out in the gift of human love? You know, there's this wonderful verse in 1 John where it says, no one has seen God at any time. He's the invisible one. But when we love then God gets seen in the world. And that happens in and through all the tapestry of ordinary life, in the birth of the child, in death, in romance, in desire, in the joy of eating with someone, laughing, crying with someone who's only truly begun to understand you. And that then becomes your holy ground. It's like the little poem that says, I sought to hear the voice of God, And climb the highest steeple. But God declared, come down again. I dwell among the people. I mentioned the last time I was speaking, Philip Yancey. And how he became a skeptic for a time in his life. And how that skepticism was broken in upon. Not in a usual route, but by three unusual ways. Number one, by the glories and the beauties of nature around him. Number two, by the power of classical music. And number three, by the melting of romantic love. And he says, as I look back, this is what matters, that I have loved and been loved, and all the rest is just background music. It's that which takes us out of ourselves and clears the way then for communions with God. You know, one of my favorite poems that I've only ever given to a handful of people in my life was written by a man called A.J. Simpson, Wilson. And this is what he writes. It's called The Sense of Him. Not merely in the words you say, not only in your deeds confessed, but in the most unconscious way is Christ expressed. Is it a beautiful smile, a holy light upon your brow? Oh no, but I felt His presence when you laughed just now. For me, twas not the truth you taught, To you so clear, to me still dim. But when you came, you brought with you a sense of him. And from your eyes he beckons me. And from your heart his love is shed. Till I lose sight of you and see the Christ instead. And that brings us to the fifth and final one today. And God speaks to us in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, I've got to be honest with you, I don't know how you feel about this, but we're living in a time when some days I'm almost hesitant to label myself Christian, because of all the connotations associated with that word. We're living in a very strange time, and for many people, this is a trigger word, because in the minds of a lot of people, Christian is synonymous with a certain political stance, or, you know, being connected to being against a whole lot of things or just being a plain old meanie or a looper or somebody with far too much to say. But do you know why I still retain it? Do you know why I still see value in it? Not just because I've learned in the last 25 years that there's lots of different ways of being Christian, but supremely because we believe that God is most intimately known through an encounter with Christ. And that's it. That's it. Everything else is just a pointer. The church is a pointer. Sometimes it's a bad one. The Bible, it's a pointer. The creation around us, it's a pointer. It's all snapshots and whispers and signposts. But in Christ, God is fully known. In other words, do you want to know what God is like? then look at him. Listen to him. Everything else is fragmentary. Everything else is imperfect and incomplete. But in him is the exact mirror and image. Do you know one day the disciples could stand it no longer. Jesus had been talking to them about going away. And they couldn't stand it. They couldn't stand it. And finally, Philip, speaking up for the whole group, he said, Lord, Show us God, and that'll be enough for us. Just show us God. We'll be satisfied with that. Just show us God. And Jesus said, oh, you want to see God? And a child, an epileptic, falling in and out of the fire and out of the water, wearing his parents to death, was brought to Jesus, and Jesus hugged them and touched them and healed them. And the disciples said, well, that's nice and all, but we want to see God. And so a leper came to Jesus. He was an untouchable, an outcast, one on the margins. And Jesus reached out and touched him and healed him. And the disciples said, but we want to see God. We want to see God. And Jesus said, oh, you want to see God. So he took a towel and a basin of water and he got down on his hands and knees and he washed all of their feet. And they said, oh no, don't, no, no, don't. We want to see God. And he said, oh, you want to see God? And so he picked up his cross, and he climbed up the hill, and he turned and looked around at every one of us, and he said, have I been with you all this time, and still you don't know me? Don't you know that whoever has seen me has seen God. And this is why we remain Christian. This is why for me the phase has lasted. Still captivated by the Galilean. Because God is met in him. And after that, every other discovery in your life is a blessing. We're going to come to the communion table in a moment, but look, just as we draw to a close, I want to ask you politely, as I ask myself, What's your listening skills like? What's your listening skills like? Do you, feel, do you ever feel sometimes like listening is arguably the most underrated skill in the world these days? Have you ever found that there are very few people who know how to listen well? Because it takes effort, it takes discipline, it takes a certain posture, turning outside of yourself. Because most of us are just waiting for the gap for a person to take a breath so we can insert our own opinion. Like the woman, that self-obsessed woman in, in the Fulham beaches where she said to her friend, well enough talk about me, let's talk about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> I was reading the other day about one of the ex-presidents of the states, I think it was Franklin Roosevelt, and the story said that you know he got really tired of all the long lines of people, that were waiting to receive him at the White House, because he he complained that no one really paid attention to anything he said. And so one day he tried out an experiment. As he went down the line and shook hands with all these important diplomats, he would lean in and whisper into their ear and say, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And they all replied, marvellous. Keep up the good work, sir. We're so proud of you. God bless America. And it wasn't until he got to the end of the line where there was the ambassador from Bolivia who actually heard what he had to say and not knowing quite how to respond, he looked at the president and then he whispered back into his ear, I'm sure she had it coming. (laughs) See, listening is a rarity in a noisy world. We have such difficulty with it. And you probably, I would say, we need it more than ever before. And maybe the one who listens can, as a result, be radically affected in ways that they never imagined. So what are your listening skills like? You're looking out for the patches of light in your own set of woods. Let me close with this. But you know, today, this afternoon, I'm going down to the children's prison in Dublin, where I work. And this afternoon, we're going to say goodbye to a boy who tomorrow morning, will be a, it will be his 18th birthday. And tomorrow, he will be transferred to Wheatfield Men's Prison, where he'll spend the next 10 years, and only after 10 years, to be considered for parole. And I was speaking on Wednesday to one of the chaplains from Wheatfield, and he said something to me down the phone that kind of put a chill down my spine. He said, John, you do realize that He's going, to a, he's going from a place where he's surrounded by a lot of support to, to one where there will be virtually nil. What he was saying was, he's going into the abyss. He's going into, as one of my colleagues calls it, the snake pit. Violent, punishing, flooded with drugs, and in some ways, a race to the bottom And here's this damaged kid, and yes, I know he's done brutal things, but let me tell you in hearing his story, brutal things have first been done to him. Perhaps, as I would say, more sinned against than sinned. And this is this damaged kid, and tomorrow, from tomorrow, this will be his home. Today, we're going down to see him and say goodbye. And when we go down, you know, we're going to put on a smile, and we'll have a birthday cake for him, and we'll we'll bring a few balloons out, and we'll try and have the crack with him. But what do you say? What do you say? Lord, give us something to say. Give us something to say. You know, miraculously, in the last two years, this lad's mother has come to Christ. And just two weeks before Christmas, he, in his room one night, opened his heart to him as well. And that's the only hope. In the midst of all the bleakness and the noise and the despair, To me, that's the only hope. And I'm going to say, Callum, I'm going to say, listen, Callum, listen for that one voice. Listen for that one voice. That one voice will never lead you wrong. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. And so I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And the man said, Put your hand into the hand of God, and that will be to you better than a light and safer than a known way. I wonder, could we all stand together? He was going to lead us in a song just now. And uh, can I just say that this communion table that has been spread is also one of the ways that we hear God. It's almost as if this table is his spoken invitation to you, that you are seen, that you are loved, and that you are invited. And when you come up here to the front to receive this little emblem in your hand, it's like your RSVP back to him to say that you respond, that you open your heart, and that you're willing. So as Dave Dave leaves us in a song just now, please feel free to come up and partake of the communion this morning.